Well, thank you, Valerie. Uh, and it is indeed a great honor to be uh, Gresham Professor of Rhetoric. Uh, looking down the list of my predecessors, numbered among them are William Empson, uh, one of the greatest literary critics and readers of Shakespeare of the 20th century. Uh, Neville Coghill, uh, who famously directed a wonderful production of The Tempest in the gardens of my college, Worcester College, which ended with Ariel running off across the surface of the lake. Um, and Jan Cott, who wrote a, a, a very important book called Shakespeare, Our Contemporary, about how Shakespeare is always of our time. But I'm going to talk about Shakespeare in his own time. In November 1597, the local tax collector in the city parish of St Helen's Bishopsgate, and you can see the boundary of the parish marked out there, reported the names of a number of local residents whose payments had been due a year before and who were in default. Among them was a certain William Shakespeare. He was assessed again in October 1598, 13 shillings and fourpence due on his goods, which were valued at five pounds, payment required the following winter. One wonders what those goods were, books perhaps. Again, he did not pay. In 1600, the overdue sum was referred to the Bishop of Winchester, who had authority in the Liberty of the Clink on the south side of the river in Bankside, outside the jurisdiction of the city sheriff. The logical inference is that from 1595 to 50, or 1596 to 1598, Shakespeare had a London residence in Bishopsgate, but that by the turn of the century, he had crossed the water to Bankside. This is consistent with what we know of the movements of his acting company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Upon their formation in 1594, they played at the modestly named theatre in Shoreditch. In 1597, following problems with their landlord, they moved to the nearby Curtain. Then between Christmas and New Year 1598, they stole back to the deserted theatre by night, accompanied by an accomplished carpenter called Peter Street and some dozen workmen. They dismantled the structure, put the timbers in storage in Street's yard near the Bridewell Jail, until the spring when they shipped the materials across the river and built the globe not far from the site of the reconstruction that stands beside the river today near Southwark Cathedral. The authorities in the City of London did not approve of playhouses. Theatre in the afternoon meant absenteeism on the part of apprentices and mischief among merchants' wives. The theatres were accordingly located in the Liberties, on the margins of the city. As my first piece of research for this lecture, I walked from St Helen's Church Bishopsgate to Curtain Road, Shoreditch, the site of those first two theatres. It took just under 15 minutes, an easy commute for Shakespeare, during which he could mull over the plays he wrote for his company in those pre-globe years. And what a group of plays they are. A Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet, Love's Labour's Lost and The Lost Love's Labour's One, The Merchant of Venice and Much Ado About Nothing, Richard II and the two parts of King Henry IV, in which the Boer's Head Tavern on East Cheap, a ten-minute walk in the opposite direction, is the key location. It made sense for Shakespeare to move across the river in 1599 in order to be close to his new theatre, for which he wrote a new comedy, a new history and a new tragedy, as you like it, Henry V and Julius Caesar. He was out of reach of the taxman. 
though a couple of years later he moved back into the city where he lodged in Silver Street in the home of a French Huguenot called Mountjoy and his wigmaker wife, a dwelling place now buried more or less exactly beneath our feet. Shakespeare could have been fined for not paying his taxes. He could also have been fined for failing to attend church, as his father had been back home in Stratford-upon-Avon. Records are patchy, so we do not know whether he was marked for non-attendance at St Helens. But given the duration of his assessment as a resident of the parish, it would be highly unlikely for him never to have darkened his doors. So what would he have found inside? Well, St Helens survived the Great Fire and the Blitz, though it was badly damaged by IRA bombs in the early 1990s. Here it is with uh, uh, a rather modern setting, but it still, it still stands and is still a place of worship. The first thing one notices going inside the church is a very distinctive double nave. It's a photograph I took last week. Now that is because it was built as a kind of two for the price of one place of worship. There was a wall down the middle. One side was for the lay people of the parish and the other was for nuns. This part of Bishopsgate was originally occupied by a Benedictine priory. Following the dissolution of the monasteries, the refectory became the livery hall of the leather cellars, and the curtain wall between the two naves was removed, giving the whole church over to the parish. The rest of the priory fell into ruin. There it is at the end of the 18th century. So here in the city, as well as in the country, Shakespeare's England was a place where you could go as a goth soldier somewhat incongruously does in Titus Andronicus, to gaze upon a ruinous monastery. A place where a metaphor for the ravages of time and the decay of all things could be found in bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. Uh, an image of a ruin, ruined monastery in Shakespeare's 73rd sonnet. A place, that is to say, where reminders of the old Catholic faith were ever present. In Hamlet, the ghost of the father speaks of his residence in purgatory, a Roman Catholic idea that was abolished in Protestant thought, while the son goes to university at Wittenberg, alma mater of Martin Luther, architect of the Reformation. In Measure for Measure, a Puritan called Angelo is pitted against a novice nun called Isabella, one element in the authorial background of that play is the fact that Shakespeare had an aunt called Isabella who was the prioress of the Benedictine nunnery at Roxall in Warwickshire near Stratford. But another might be Shakespeare's imagination setting to work as he sat or kneeled, probably bored, one Sunday in St Helen's Church Bishopsgate during his years of residence in the parish. As he thought of that old curtain wall, the embodiment of the boundary between the enclosed priory and a bustling city of commerce, legal dispute and sexual intrigue, the seed might have been sown for a dark comedy in which a pimp visits a nunnery in the heart of a steamy city, measure for measure. But that is speculation. What we can say for sure is that there were a number of monuments in the church. Among them, just above an imposing altar tomb in the nave of what was originally the nun's half, there was a memorial to one William Bond, died 1576, memorial fl um, flanked by Corinthian columns and bearing an inscription split across for two sides of the mural, 
and laid out in Latin hexameter verse. Let's look in close up at the inscription. Flos mercatorum quos terra Britanna creavit, eke sub hoc tumulo guiemus bondus humator. And so it goes on. I won't read it all. But the key lines for, for my purposes are magnanimum graeci mirantor jasona vates, aurea de gelido retulit quia valeri faci, hic jacet argolico mercator jasone major. I'll explain to take the key points. Bond, buried here, is described as the flower of merchants. Born of Britannia, he has sailed the seas, braving great dangers in order to enrich his native land with foreign merchandise. As ancient poets have praised Jason for winning the golden fleece from the king of Colchis, so Bond must be praised because he is a new Argonaut, a greater Jason, who has won many fleeces, vast quantities of gold. Death cannot overcome the honoured memory of this flower of merchants. That's a, a loose translation. So Bond was an alderman and sheriff of the city who, as the monument makes clear, accumulated great wealth as a merchant adventurer. He was incidentally the brother of Sir George Bond, who became Lord Mayor of London in the Armada year, which happens to be the first year when William Shakespeare is recorded in London, acting for his family in a legal case. I'm intrigued by the thought of Shakespeare in that church, which still stands today, reading this inscription on Bond's monument. Or, if not Shakespeare himself, then certain members of the theatre audience at the Curtain doing so or indeed readers of the scripts of Shakespeare's plays that were available from the booksellers a 15-minute walk away in St Paul's churchyard. Intrigued for two reasons. First, the obvious fact that the monument, that, that this, the inscription is written in Latin. The monument itself shows Bond and his wife and their six sons and one daughter kneeling at prayer. This is to reveal their piety and the sure hope of the eternal salvation of Mr Bond's soul. But those flanking Corinthian pillars and the language in which the inscription is written are reminders to the viewer that even, or maybe especially, because the church and state of England had broken from the Roman church, the culture of Elizabethan England measured itself by, forged itself in the image of ancient Rome. Latin was the language of the grammar school. Anyone with even a rudimentary education would have been able to read that inscription. The second matter of interest is the comparison used to praise William Bond and to assert his fame. He is described as another Jason, and his merchant sailors are seen as new Argonauts. The comparison is a perfect example of a way of thinking that was utterly characteristic of the age of Shakespeare. Understanding and judgment in the present are shaped and bolstered by measurement against the classical past, evocation of the examples of ancient Greece and Rome. We may date Shakespeare's play The Merchant of Venice with a degree of certainty. 
In a book published in 1598 that reveals close knowledge of Shakespeare's plays on stage, a clergyman named Francis Mears listed it among Shakespeare's comedies. In July that year, it was registered for publication. A reference to a ship called the Andrew suggests a date of late 1596 or early 1597, because that was a time, the time when a Spanish vessel called the St Andrew was much in the news, having been a ca captured during the assault on Cadiz. So Shakespeare's Merchant Adventurer play was written while he was a resident in the parish of St Helens. Now listen to Bassanio in the opening scene. In Belmont is a lady richly left. And she is fair, and fairer than that word, of wondrous virtues. Nor is the wide world ignorant of her worth, for the four winds blow in from every coast renowned suitors, and her sunny locks hang on her temples like a golden fleece, which makes her seat of Belmont Colchos strand, and many Jasons come in quest of her. Then there is fellow adventurer Gratiano, after Bassanio achieves the rich prize of Portia's fortune. How doth that royal merchant, good Antonio? I know he will be glad of our success. We are the Jasons, we have won the fleece. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that Shakespeare made the comparison between Bassanio and Jason as a result of reading the words on the monument in the church comparing William Bond to Jason, though it is a nice coincidence that the word bond is at the very heart of the play. 39 of the 73 Shakespearean occurrences of that word are in The Merchant of Venice, mostly in the context of the bond between Antonio and Shylock over a loan and a pound of flesh. Remember, Shylock keeps talking about that bond. But my point is rather that Shakespeare the dramatist and the anonymous author of the inscription in Latin hexameter verses on Bond's funeral monument, monument share a frame of mind in which they reach instinctively for the example of Jason as they, ex as they extol the ex exploits of a modern merchant adventurer. During the 1560s, while Bond was making his fortune by land and sea, Arthur Golding, whom we'll be meeting again in this series of lectures, was at work on his English translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses, which would be Shakespeare's favourite book, and in which the story of Jason and the Argonauts was transmitted to an Elizabethan readership. In his prefatory epistle, Golding explained that the good success of Jason in the land of Colchos and the doings of Medea since do give to understand that nothing is so hard but pain and travail do it win, do it win for fortune ever favoureth such as boldly do begin. Travail there is a pun on hard work and travel. As far as the writer of the encomium to Bond was concerned, his arduous labours by land and sea, like those of Jason, proved the adage that fortune favours the brave. The message of Shakespeare's play is rather more complicated, as is hinted by the presence there of the name of Medea as well as Jason. But Medea is someone we will come to in a later lecture. The Merchant of Venice, with its trading argosies at sea, its commercial bonds and legal disputes at home, is very much a play of the modern city. As often in the drama of the period, an Italian setting is used as a kind of body double for an English setting. 
the powerful men of the city of London were suspicious enough of the world of theatre without adding to their hostility by coming too close to home. The contentious matter of usury, lending money at interest, was best displaced to Venice and the Jew. But the displacement invites reflection upon the parallels. When the dispute with Shylock over the bond is referred to the courts, Antonio says, the Duke cannot deny the course of law for the commodity that strangers have with us in Venice, if it be denied, will much impeach the justice of his state, since that the trade and profit of the city consisteth of all nations. A London audience, hearing those lines spoken at the Curtain Theatre in 1597 or 1598, would have thought of their own city, the trade and profit of London in the first age of globalisation, depended on strangers, both traders from abroad but also resident aliens, depended on them having full confidence in the legal system, especially when it came to the enforcement of contracts. For Shakespeare's original audience, there was a clear sense in which the conduct of business on the Rialto mirrored that in the Royal Exchange in London. So it is to say the least suggestive that Shakespeare hatched the play when he lived in Bishopsgate. For in St Helen's Church, he would have seen the tomb of the most famous merchant of London, Sir Thomas Gresham. It is indeed the very altar tomb just below the monument to William Bond. There it is. Furthermore, one of the landmarks of the parish of St. Helens was Gresham's Mansion. We will come in a moment to what was going on there while Shakespeare was writing and premiering The Merchant of Venice. But first, let us walk 500 yards down the road to the building that was opened by Queen Elizabeth I in January 1571 on a site provided by the City of London Corporation and the Worshipful Company of Mercers. At the suggestion of his factor, Gresham had the vision of a commercial centre for the city. Having made his money as a businessman in the Low Countries, he had a model to hand. The design of the Royal Exchange was based on that of the Bourse in Antwerp the city that had been Europe's greatest trading centre throughout the first half of the 16th century. So it is that in Thomas Hayward's play, If You Know Not Me, You Know Nobody, it's a biographical play about Queen Elizabeth uh, performed and published just after her death, it combines the story of the building of the Royal Exchange with the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And there's a scene where a lord is imagined standing in front of this brand new building, the first Royal Exchange, saying that he has never seen a goodlier frame in all his life. He says, yet I have been in Venice, in the Rialto, there called St Mark's. The, the Rialto at that time was thought of as the whole of that region, not just the bridge. I have been in Venice, in the Rialto, there called St Mark's. It is but a bauble compared to this. The nearest that which most resembles this is the great burst in Antwerp, yet not comparable either in height or wideness, the fair cellarage or goodly shops above. Oh, my Lord Mayor, this Gresham hath much graced your city London. His fame will long outlive him, as indeed it has. Thank you, Sir Thomas, for bringing us here today. But now look at an engraving of the Bourse in Antwerp that was Gresham's model. That's the large illustration here. 
What I'm interested in is the tabular inscription at the bottom, which is headed SPQA. That is to say, Senatus Populusque Antwerpum. Rome was the centre of the ancient world. Thus, Antwerp proclaims itself the centre of the modern world. And for a time, that boast was justified. The historian, the historian Fernand Brodel argues that by the mid-16th century, Antwerp had become not merely the richest city in Europe, but the centre of the entire international economy. In this, it was the true successor to Venice. But as Venice had begun its long, slow decline, so Antwerp's moment passed. The religious wars in the Low Countries broke out in the 1560s, and in 1576, the city was sacked in a fit of what was known as Spanish fury. Gresham's timing was impeccable. If Venice was Antwerp's predecessor, London was its successor. As the Bourse had taken over from the Rialto, now the Royal Exchange took over from the Bourse as the engine room of the world economy. And you can see uh, the similarity of, of, of the design here. This is the, the first Royal Exchange, which, of course, was destroyed in the Great Fire. So each great trading city in early modern Europe thus sought to outdo the others in claiming to be the modern descendant of ancient Rome. So it was that the Temple of Janus built for the 1604 coronation procession of King James, was emblazoned on its altar with the initials SPQL. That's a, a, a tabular inscription uh, written by Ben Jonson, friend and rival of Shakespeare. Sonatus Populusque Londinium. Shakespeare lived in a neo-Roman world. He was drilled in that idea from an early age. His own plays were part of a national project to invent a new cultural heritage on the model of ancient Rome, not least as a form of resistance to the Catholic authority of modern Rome. Look around Shakespeare's London. His culture, visually, verbally and in its customs, was as steeped in the examples of antiquity as it was in the habits of Christianity. Yes, the skyline of the famous Vischer panorama of London is dominated by the Tower of Old St Paul's and dozens and dozens of church spires. But the engraving's inscriptions are in Latin. The title is Londinum Florentissima Britanniae Urbs Emporium Que Toto Orbe Celeberunum. In other words, uh, London, the most flourishing city of Britain, uh, the greatest emporium of the world. That idea taking over from Antwerp as the, the emporium, the trading centre of the world. And the river flowing through the middle is um, Tamisus Fluvius, an allusion to the Tiber flowing through ancient Rome. And the theatres in the foreground, here, here are the theatres on, on the South Bank, those were of a structure, an architecture, that, as the tourist Johannes de Witt put it when sketching the Swan Theatre, seems to bear the appearance of a Roman work. Indeed, in labelling the parts of the theatre for the benefit of a friend back home in the Netherlands, De Witt used Roman terms. Proscenium for the stage, memorum ides for the tiring house, the backstage area, 
planetes sive arena, planetes or arena for the pit, the yard, the area where the groundlings will have stood around the stage. Ingressus for the exit. Elsewhere in his, uh, his book Observationes Londini- Londiniensis, uh, Observations of London, which only survives in fragmentary form, DeWitt noted that London had four theatres and he called them amphitheatre, clearly a classical term. If we follow another European tourist around London in 1599, the year when Shakespeare moved from Bishopsgate to Southwark, we find allusions to ancient Rome everywhere. The man in question is Philip Hentzner, a tutor accompanying a minor German aristocrat on his grand tour. And this is what Hentzner writes when he arrives in London in his notebook. London, the head and metropolis of England, called by Tacitus Londinium, by Ptolemy Logidinium, by Ammianus Marcellinus Lundinium, by foreigners Londra and Londre, It is the seat of the British Empire, the chamber of the English kings, and was originally founded, all historians agree, by Brutus, who, coming from Greece into Italy, thence into Africa, next to France, and last into Britain, chose this situation for the convenience of the river, calling it Troia Nova, which which name afterwards was corrupted into Trinovant. But when Lud, the brother of Cassibilan, who warred against Julius Caesar, as Caesar himself mentions, Book 5, De Bel Gal, De, Bellica, De, De Belli Gallicae, uh, Caesar's book about the Gallic Wars, uh, when Cassibilan came to the crown, he encompassed it with strong walls and towers artfully constructed, and from his own name called it Lud's City. And so from Lud's City we get London. Well, I'm going to return in my next lecture to this idea that Britain was founded by Brutus, the legendary descendant of Aeneas, and also to the reference there to the war between the Romans who came to Britain in the generation of Jul- after Julius Caesar and Cassibilan's nephew, whose name was Cunibalan, otherwise known as Cymbeline. But for now, the point to note is that Hentzner is buying into the myth that, like ancient Rome, modern London saw itself as a new Troy. Um, just anticipating next week when I'm going to be talking about um, Aeneas. You remember Aeneas escapes from Troy, becomes the founder of Rome, so Rome sees itself as a second Troy. London, by this account, a new Troy, a new Rome. King Lud was buried in Ludgate, which Hentzner observes is the oldest entrance into the city. Though others, he notes, imagine rather that the gate was originally named Floodgate from a stream over which it stands like the Porta Fluentana at Rome. But whichever story you buy into there, ancient Rome is the point of comparison. Similarly, when Hentzner takes a tour of Westminster Abbey, um, it's very interesting, just as you could pay a penny to go to the theatre to see a Shakespeare play, you could also pay a penny and a tour guide would take you around Westminster Abbey, focusing on the tombs of the English kings. And when Hentzner took that tour, he, he made a particular note of the chair on which the kings are seated when they are crowned. He noted that in it is enclosed a stone. He attributed the sacred power of that stone to the Judeo-Christian tradition. It was said to be the stone on which the patriarch Jacob slept when he dreamed he saw a ladder reaching up to heaven, angels descending upon it. But written upon a tablet hanging near it, 
are Latin verses that not only tell the story of Jacob, but also inform the visitor that Edward I, the Mars and Hector of England, having conquered Scotland, brought it from thence. So the military heroism, if that's what you want to call it, that enabled King Edward I to steal the stone of Schoon is defined by a comparison of him to Mars, the Roman god of war, and Hector, the exemplary Trojan hero. Again, when Hensner's tour takes him to the Tower of London, we learn that the very ancient and very strong White Tower, enclosed with four others, in the opinion of some, was built by Julius Caesar. The tower that we see correctly as a symbol of the Norman conquest, the Elizabethans fancifully construed as a vestige of the Romans in Britain. Thus Shakespeare, towards the end of Richard II, with the deposed king about to enter under guard, using the tower to tell his audience that the scene is to be imagined in a London street. This way the king will come. This is the way to Julius Caesar's ill-erected tower, to whose flint bosom my condemned lord is doomed a prisoner. Flint economically plays on the materiality of the White Tower and the harshness of the prison conditions within. Richard II is not the only Shakespearean royal to be taken to the Tower. Here is one of the boy princes on the way to his fate in Richard III, Prince Edward. I do not like the Tower of any place. Did Julius Caesar build that place, my lord? Buckingham. He did, my gracious lord, begin that place, which since succeeding ages have re-edified. Prince Edward. Is it upon record, or else reported successively from age to age he built it? Buckingham, upon record, my gracious lord. It is a shame that the prince is about to be slaughtered. He is clearly a clever schoolboy, a budding historian eager to question his sources and warn against the unreliability of oral tradition, otherwise known as legend. Here, Shakespeare is gently poking fun at the Romans in Britain tradition, as he will do more sustainedly in Cymbeline near the end of his career. So ancient Rome was everywhere in Shakespeare's London. And the stories of ancient Greece and Rome were everywhere in Shakespeare. And it's these connections that will be my theme in my first year of Gresham Lectures. When we speak of Shakespeare and Rome, we usually think of the four plays that the Royal Shakespeare Company are staging round the corner in the Barbican in its current season, the early bloodfest of Titus Andronicus and the three mature tragedies of Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra and Coriolanus. It is easy to forget that no fewer than 13 of Shakespeare's 40 or so works are set in the world of ancient Greece or Rome. 13. That constitutes one third of his corpus, a body of work ranging from erotic and narrative poetry to tragedy to comedy to ancient history to satire to romance, covering a time span from the Trojan War to 5th century Athens to the early years of Rome to the assassination of Julius Caesar to the Roman Empire with excursions into mythological narrative, Hellenistic seafaring romance and more. So, just to pick them out, the Comedy of Errors is a free adaptation of the Menichmi of the Roman dramatist Plautus, with embellishments from another comedy by the same author. Titus Andronicus is a tragedy in the style of Seneca that brings onto stage the metamorphoses of Ovid. 
Venus and Adonis is also developed from the metamorphoses, while the rape of Lucrece is derived from a fusion of Livy's history of Rome with Ovid's Fasti. A Midsummer Night's Dream is set in the mythical Greece of Theseus and Hippolyta, whilst incorporating a dramatization of Ovid's Pyramus and Thisbe story. The three tragedies traditionally grouped together as the Roman plays, Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, and Coriolanus, are all based closely on Plutarch's lives of the noble Grecians and Romans in the English translation of Thomas North. Troilus and Cressida draws on both classical and medieval narrations of the matter of Troy. Timon of Athens brings Plutarch's life of Alcibiades together with the satirical dialogue by Lucian. Pericles is in a tradition that dates back to third century Greek romance. The world of Cymbeline holds chronicle histories concerning the Roman occupation of Britain together with the appearance of Jupiter as a deus ex machina. Its style of narrative is, like that of Pericles, shaped by Hellenistic romance, in particular the Ethiopian tale of Heliodorus. Among Shakespeare's characters are not only famous figures from the classical tradition, such as Venus and Hymen, Theseus and Hippolyta, Achilles and Hector, Lucrece, Alcibiades, Caesar and Cleopatra, but also soothsayers, Goths sacking Rome, and by report, the Delphic oracle of Apollo. Furthermore, all his works, wherever and whenever set, include frequent allusions to the mythology, literature, history and culture of ancient Greece and Rome. And his favourite books were either classical works or contemporary ones influenced by the classics. Where did all of this begin? Patterns of thought are learned at school. It was Stratford-upon-Avon Grammar School, Shakespeare's schoolroom, that formed the mind of young William, to whom he surely nods in the scene in The Merry Wives of Windsor, his most English play, where a Welsh schoolmaster, he had one himself, gives a Latin lesson to a bright but cheeky schoolboy called... William. Sir Hugh Evans's Hig, Hag and Hog are a comic reminder of the tedium of Elizabethan early years education, which was all accidents and syntax. But once one had grasped the essentials of Lily's Latin grammar, there were rewards in store. Play acting, for one thing. The dramatisation of scenes from classical myth and history was a common schoolroom task of a kind evoked in the memory of the character of Julia disguised as a boy in The Two Gentlemen of Verona. For I did play a lamentable part. Madam, t'was Ariadne, passioning for Theseus' perjury and unjust flight, which I so lively acted with my tears that my poor mistress, moved therewithal, wept bitterly. And would I might be dead if I in thought felt not her very sorrow. Emotional education, the art of passioning, interpreting the passions, is taught by way of a dramatisation of one of the stories in Ovid's Heroides, Ariadne deserted by Theseus. The rhetorical art of persuading listeners to change their minds here becomes a dramatic art of moving an audience to tears, in anticipation of the player's famous speech in Hamlet. Then there were exemplary stories. In Titus Andronicus, a schoolboy's book is the device whereby the silenced and mutilated Lavinia reveals her own history. Soft, so busily she turns the leaves. What would she find? Lavinia, shall I read? This is the tragic tale of Philomel and treats of Terius' treason and his rape. 
and rape, I fear, was root of thine annoy. Storytelling was Shakespeare's method of making sense of the world, and no stories caught his imagination more fully than those of classical antiquity. What books readeth your master unto you? asks the interlocutor's voice in a language textbook printed in 1591 by Shakespeare's schoolfellow from Stratford, Richard Field, who came to London and became an important printer. He readeth Terence, Virgil, Horace, Tully's offices. Shakespeare's encounters with these authors in grammar school laid the foundations of his art. Terence introduced him to comedy, Virgil to the heroic idiom, Horace to lyrical, occasional and satirical poetry, and Tully, the other name for Cicero, to thoughtful reflection upon ethics, politics and public duty. But it wasn't only the stories, the character types and the literary genres. Most fundamentally, it was at the grammar school that Shakespeare learnt the art of rhetoric, the persuasive use of words, the elaboration of linguistic figures, the ability to argue both sides of a case. The art of rhetoric provided him with the building blocks of his literary achievement. That was his technique, his mode of writing. And it brings us back to the parish of St Helen's Bishopsgate during Shakespeare's residence there in the late 1590s. Why are we here today? Because Sir Thomas Gresham specified in his will that his house in that parish in Bishopsgate should be turned into a college where a professor of rhetoric should enlighten the citizens of London upon that subject. The solemn rhetoric lecture is to be read twice every week in the term time upon Saturday. Sorry, we've changed the day. Whereof the first must be in Latin from eight of the clock until nine of the clock in the forenoon of the same day. I promise I wasn't here at eight o'clock reading this in Latin. And the later to be in English from two o'clock in the afternoon until three o'clock of the same day. So lectures delivered twice. And this is extraordinary because at Oxford and Cambridge, the only universities at the time, everything was in Latin. In Latin for the university educated and the international visitors, London was becoming a place of intellectual as well as commercial exchange. And Latin was the international language. And then in English for those who had not had the benefit of an Oxford or Cambridge education. Perhaps even for such people as the country grammar school boy who was making a splash in the theatre world, despite being mocked by the Oxbridge writers as an upstart crow. Of course, it is a fancy to imagine Shakespeare taking a break from the rehearsal of The Merchant of Venice or the writing of Hamlet and popping over the road to listen to Richard Ball delivering the inaugural Gresham lecture on rhetoric during Michaelmas term 1598. But people who attend public lectures are often the kind of people who also attend plays, are they not? <laughs> so it is by no means fanciful, fanciful to suppose that some of Shakespeare's original City of London audience would have been at some of those early lectures on rhetoric. The texts of the early Gresham lectures do not survive, alas, so we can only guess at the content. But as good a guess as any would be to imagine that the inaugural lecture began along lines similar to these. What is rhetoric? Rhetoric is an art to set forth by utterance of words matter at large, or as Cicero that doth say, it is a learned or rather an artificial declaration of the mind in the handling of any cause in contention that may through reason be discussed. 
the matter whereupon an orator must speak. An orator must be able to speak fully of all those questions which by law and man's ordinance are enacted and appointed for the use and profit of man. That's actually the opening of Thomas Wilson's The Art of Rhetoric, 1560, a book Shakespeare almost certainly knew. It was the first vernacular treatise on a subject that had a history going back via Erasmus and Vives in the early 16th century humanist educational revolution, through Quintilian and Cicero in ancient Rome, all the way to Aristotle and ultimately the sophists of ancient Athens. The famous sophist Gorgias said that a successful rhetorician could speak convincingly on any topic, regardless of his experience in the field. If you are a good enough orator, he said, you could argue that Helen of Troy was not to blame for the start of the Trojan War. (laughs) That was the kind of irresponsible line of argument of which Plato thoroughly disapproved. His strictures upon rhetoric led in turn to Aristotle's defence and codification of the art of rhetoric. And so the story continued through the centuries. What is rhetoric? The declaration of the mind in persuasive, well-organised and memorable words. What is the appropriate subject matter for rhetoric? Any question that is of use and profit for humankind. What kind of questions are to be asked? Wilson says both infinite ones, such as the relative merits of the active and the contemplative life, or of marriage and the single life. Also, surely such unanswerable questions as to be or not to be, that is the question. But also, Wilson says, answerable, finite questions, such as the religious question of whether priests should be celibate and the political one of whether the best royal marriage is made domestically or internationally. And especially legal questions. Lawyers who resided in the inns of court and the inns of chancery and many of whom attended the theatres or commissioned special performances from Shakespeare's acting company no doubt sat in on those Gresham lectures. They they were trained in the art of rhetoric because it taught them the art of debate. As Wilson puts it, the one affirming for his part and the other denying as fast for his part. That's what gives lawyers the skill to argue on behalf of either a plaintiff or a defendant. Now, once you see rhetoric in these terms, it becomes clear that it is Shakespeare's essential tools. His plays explore all those big, infinite questions, the pros and cons of marriage, the rights and wrongs of monarchical behaviour, the case for and against revenge, the weighing of justice and mercy, the relationship between public and private selves. His characters are orators, each using language to affirm for his part as another denies as fast again for her part. Shakespeare's rhetoric runs the gamut from the razor-sharp banter of Beatrice and Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing to the formal orations of Brutus and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar to Hamlet's restless asking of the infinite, the unanswerable questions. The inaugural Gresham Lecture on Rhetoric of 1598 in all probability referred at some point to Aristotle's influential anatomy of rhetoric into three kinds. Forensic, which is legal rhetoric. Epideictic, which is the language of praise, especially used for public ceremonies. And deliberative rhetoric. For Aristotle and Cicero, deliberative rhetoric took place in the political arena. Its purpose was to debate the public good. And it particularly used a a technique where examples from the past 
were used in order to decide on the best action for the future, a model of learning from history, an art of comparison, of example. The comparison should be, writes Wilson in his Art of Rhetoric, with famous men. This will strengthen your case. Examples are most suitable to deliberative speech, for we judge of future events by divination from past events. That's a great phrase, so I'll read it again. We judge of future events by divination from past events. Now, that art is applicable in any public forum, not merely a court or council, senate or parliament. So deliberative rhetoric had a very wide application. And in Shakespeare's London, the theatre was a new and democratic space for open debate about both public goods and private lives. The technique of deliberative rhetoric was, I believe, something Shakespeare practised in almost everything he wrote. And that's what I'm going to demonstrate in my next four lectures, where I'm going to show how he used, to use that phrase again, divination from past events in the form of classical examples to, for, to, to explore four key aspects of human life. In my next lecture, heroic action, which we might call the realm of Mars, the god of war. And the one after that, erotic love, the realm of Venus, the goddess of love. And then civic duty, where the example of Cicero, the Roman master rhetorician, was key. And then the encounter with the uncanny or the supernatural world, as manifested in ghosts and spirits. And there we will find ourselves flitting between Seneca, Ovid, and Renaissance Neoplatonism. But to end today on a slightly lighter note, Although I will be arguing that Shakespeare's imagination was shaped by the art of rhetoric, and particularly this idea of divination from the classical past, the use of classical examples, he was far too clever to be content with the elaboration of ingenious verbal tropes and schemes to which this ancient art was often reduced in the teaching and writing of his age. Rhetoric made him but he also rejoiced in parodying the pedantic figurative rhetoric that he found in the textbooks and in some other dramatists, not notably John Lilly, the court dramatist. We see this most fully in the delicious verbosity of Holofernes and Don Armado in Love's Labour's Lost, a play that might just as well have been called Rhetoric's Labour Lost. In the following passage, the Spanish Don's love letter to the dairymaid Jaconetta takes the question and answer technique, which rhetoricians practised, to something of an extreme. The magnanimous and most illustrate King Cofetua, you see the classical example, set eye upon the pernicious and indubitable beggar Zenelophon, and he it was that might rightly say veni vidi vici, which to anothenize in the vulgar, oh base and obscure vulgar videlicet, he came, saw, and overcame. He came, one, saw, two, overcame, three. Who came? The king. Why did he come? to see. Why did he see? To overcome. To whom came he? To the beggar. What saw he? The beggar. Who overcame he? The beggar. The conclusion is victory. On whose side? The king's. The captive is enriched. On whose side? The beggar's. The catastrophe is a nuptial. On whose side? The king's. No, on both in one or one in both. And so forth. 
And then, of course, there is the punchline that brings to a temporary stop the absurd rhetorical amplitude of that courtier too much in love with the sound of his own voice, Polonius of Elsinore. I will be brief. (laughs) My liege and madam, to expostulate what majesty should be, what duty is, why day is day, night is night, and time is time, were nothing but to waste night, day, and time. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit, and tediousness the limbs and outward flourishes, I will be brief. Your noble son is mad. Thank you. (laughs) 